turn with me this morning to John chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 30 and 31 together in John chapter 20. And as we look at these two verses together, please note that we are drawing to the end of John's account of the gospel. Um, you hopefully, if you've been, if you were following the Lenten reading schedule, hopefully you finished this uh, last Sunday. Um, but I want to look at these two verses together this morning, and then also look at a few other passages that John has written, as well as some other passages in the scriptures together. And I want to think with you about this idea of having life in the name of Jesus. Having life in His name. John, as he draws near to the end of his gospel record, tells us that truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in His name. Let's breathe a word of prayer together over the Scriptures. Father, this is Your Word to us, and we receive it as such, and we pray that You would bless the reading of Your Word to our hearts, to our minds, to our souls, to our bodies, to our lives and our very selves. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see. We pray that you would give us hands that are ready to work and feet that are ready to move. And we pray that you would help us to see your son Jesus in what you have to say to us this morning. We pray all of these things in His name. Amen. As we look to this subject of life in His name, I want you to consider with me just for a moment the fact that we were meant to live. You and I were made for life. We know this um, based upon the evidence that we find in life, in life, about life, but we know this simply for the fact that we are living. That God has given to us life. The One who has made us in His image, He has designed us to be alive. He has designed us to live. It is His intention for us that we live. In the Scriptures, we find that death is, is accidental to creation. It was not intended. That it was because of sin that death entered the world. But God has made us for life. You and I are meant to live. Just a, uh, a few uh, empirical evidences that we have of this is first our survival instinct. You and I, everything within us longs to continue on longs to survive, to live yet another day. When trouble comes, we immediately try to figure out how do we get out of it. Whether it's relational trouble, 
financial trouble, sociological trouble, political trouble, economic troubles, whether it's physical or life-threatening trouble, we, 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 by our instincts, attempt to survive, especially so physically. We don't want to die. We don't want this life to end. We want to survive. Secondly, we have this, uh, this thing C.S. Lewis noted, which is a desire for joy. We want to be not just happy, we want to be never-endingly happy. We want to be the fullest of happy. In fact, the moments that we are happy, we feel within ourselves, we feel within our guts, within the depths of our souls, within our marrow, this desire that there's got to be something like this, only so much bigger and so much more sustaining. There's got to be something beyond just this momentary happiness that we experience. We want that happiness, but we don't want it to be momentary. And we don't, want it to, we don't want it to end. We want it to be even richer than we know it. But we see within ourselves, we sense within our very souls, this desire for true and full, genuine joy. And the only way we know how to meet that desire in any sense is in life. We want to find things in life that make us happy. So we want bigger and fancier or perhaps smaller and sportier and faster cars. We want, um, we want a little bit of leisure in the day. We want to end the day well with some rest. We want even better rest when we're resting. We want the nicer mattress, bigger bed. But in this life, we find ourselves attempting to provide happiness for our lives. And we know that, that the happiness we, that, that we do feel, the happiness that we do know, the happiness that we are acquainted with, that there must be something richer, that there must be something more lasting than just that. C.S. Lewis said that that, is, that that points us to God. That there's, there's something for which our souls desire that cannot be met in this life, therefore, perhaps we were made for another life. Another world. And then a, a negative. The harshness of death. Death hits us in the face when it comes. Whether it's our own or that of a loved one, it's always harsh. It's always brutal. It's always tough. Even in the most dignified of death, death is a defeat. And it's one we don't like. It's one that our bodies fight against. It's one that our minds struggle against. Because we were made to live. We were made for life. Jesus, in speaking to the crowds in John chapter 10... And in noting that he himself was the good shepherd that God the Father had sent to shepherd his sheep. He said, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Jesus recognizes that we have been made for life, that we were meant to live 
For He is the one who has made us. He is the one who has formed us. He is the one uh, who has created us. The Scriptures tell us that all things have been made by Him, through Him, and for Him. And He says that He came to give us life. Not to take it away. Not to destroy it. Not to kill it. Not to end it. But to come to give life. And to, and to give an abundance of life. A full and complete and joyous life. John, as he draws near to the end of his gospel record, he gives us the reason why he's been talking. He gives us the reason why he's been writing what he's been writing. Don't you love that? You get to the end of a, of a you know, perhaps a 300-page novel, and you're not sure exactly what the writer's been trying to say, and then, and then boom, the very end, on that last page, ah, it all makes sense. If you've read uh, C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, Rick, you know how that can, uh, how that can uh, work itself out. You get to the end and finally it's all making sense. It's all coming together. John kind of does that for us. He just starts out, he gives us the prologue, or the, the introduction, that prologue section in, in uh, chapter 1, and then he just jumps right into the story. And it's at the very end that he says, here's why I've done this. Here's why I've written these things. Jesus certainly did many other signs. Remember, uh, John does not refer to miracles. He refers to signs. These are miracles that happened that Jesus did to point to who He was. And He says that these are given really for two reasons. One primary, and then the other secondary. Secondary, not because it's least important. In fact, it's probably even more important. But the second comes as a result of the first, He says. The first is so that you might believe something. That Jesus is the Christ. Christ being a Greek word, uh, uh, translating the Hebrew word Messiah. The Anointed One. The One who God had sent, was going to send into the world to redeem His people. And John says, I've given you these signs. I've given you this account, this story, so that you might believe something about Jesus. Specifically, that He is the Messiah. That He is God's anointed one. He is the one who has come to redeem us. And connected to that, that He's not just some one that God has sent. He's not just somebody that God prepared to send to the world, but He is indeed the Son of God. John wants us to believe. Notice these are mental beliefs. John wants us to get into our heads the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and that He is the Son of God. He wants our minds to say, okay, I recognize that. But belief for John is not just something that's mental, but it's something that's also heart-related. That by believing this about Jesus, we might have life in His name. You know, it's one thing to believe certain tenets of Christianity. It's another thing to say, you know what, I am resting my life in Him. 
John Wesley recognized that. John Wesley was in uh, pastoral ministry for years. He had gone through a um, process of education. He was extremely, extremely disciplined uh, Christian person before he recognized Christ died for me and he is my redeemer. He had been telling everyone he is your redeemer. Christ died for you. God sent his son into this world to redeem you and he had never yet known for himself that that was a reality in his own life. For our minds to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, is one thing. For ourselves to find life in His name is something much deeper. And it's something that's more, um, much more targeted in John's account of the Gospel. But he says that by believing this about Jesus, His desire is that we would have life. In his name. John. In encapsulating his purpose. For his gospel record. And encapsulating his purpose. For giving these few signs. To us. To his readers. He brings up these couple of things. This idea of belief. This idea of life. And in considering this idea of having life in his name, he really begs a couple of questions, it seems. The first is, what does it mean to be bearers of his name? If we are to have, if believing that, that Jesus is the Christ, if believing that he is the Son of God, if, if that is to bring life in his name, what does it mean to be bearers of his name? In the ancient world as well as the modern a person's name spoke to their character. It suggests this idea of nature. We, we don't like the family name being profaned. We don't like the family name being brought down low. Um, as a congregation, we want to protect the name of Faith Methodist Church. As, a, uh, as sports fans... Braves are doing very well so far. Let's see if they can keep that up. Um, as sports fans, one of the very interesting things about uh, being a Braves fan that I've recognized over the years, I, I grew up in Atlanta. You know, I grew up in Mississippi, but Atlanta was our local team. And so I grew up when the Braves were absolutely horrible. And I, and I remember the Cinderella season. I remember watching Sid bring around third, and he was chugging along and chugging along and panting. And my mom was ironing clothes in the living room. And my dad and I are screaming, yelling, he's going to do it, he's going to do it. And he slides in. Uh, I remember growing up with a horrible team and with a, a team that it, it seemed like miraculously became a wonderful team. Um, but one of the things that I've always recognized about the Atlanta Braves is that they have always been very careful. This is probably because of Bobby Cox. Uh, he had a lot of influence in this. They were always very careful about protecting the name of the Braves. Those players that had a, a bit of arrogance, they better start laying low when, when the trading deadline approached because they were on the chopping block. And normally they were gone. A little bit of cockiness, a little bit of... They didn't like a lot... He, Bobby Cox did not like a lot of flair on the team. He didn't like players that were trying to stand out. 
uh, you protect the name of the team. No arrogance, no cockiness, no, um, not that they all have the greatest and most moral characters, but um, you at least uh, publicly protect the name of the team. Uh, the name of Christ suggests something of his character, something of, uh, something of all, also of the family. God was very concerned in the Old Testament for the family name. In fact, it was because of Israel profaning his name that Yahweh sent them into captivity. Read the prophets. The prophets tell you over and over again that it is because of what Israel has done to the name of God before the nations, before these pagan nations, before these nations who are not necessarily their enemies, but the nations that they have been established to bring redemption to. God says, you have profaned my name among the nations. You have made me to be a byword to them. They think I'm just as self-centered as their gods are. They think I'm just as heartless, just as cold, just as, as, um, just as profane as their gods. John says that we are called to have life in his name. And in bearing his name, we're called to share in his character. We're called to be a part of his family. But the second question that's, that seems to be begged by, the, by John's purpose here is what are the characteristics of his life? And I want to lay out for you, uh, suggest to you three characteristics that we find explicitly in the gospel records, especially so in John, at least this first one. The characteristics of his life are, first of all, incarnation. John begins his um, he begins his gospel record by speaking of the word who has made flesh and has come and dwelt among us speaking of the incarnation of the eternal son that he has come that he has taken on our human flesh that he has become one of us to redeem us he is the light who has come to shatter our darkness and he's really come in considering the fact that, that uh, one of the characteristics of his life is incarnation, I have in mind three specific things. He was physical. He has come to redeem this physical life. And if we are to have life in his name, we too are called to be physical people. He was really made human. The early church was very careful about protecting this significant and unique aspect of Christian doctrine that God actually became a human being in his son Jesus. And then the other thing is that he was real. He, his, his, his humanity, his physicality, was true. One of the early heresies in the church that, um, that came as an attack against the Christian gospel was that Jesus only, he only kind of appeared to be human. It was a pretty good appearance, but 
It was, it was enough to convince the disciples that, that he was really there and really human. But he was some sort of ghost because God wouldn't actually become physical. He wouldn't actually become a human, right? But the early church was very careful to protect the gospel against this profaning of our hope in him. And if we are to share the characteristics of his life, then we too are called to be incarnate. We're called to be physical people. The, the, um, uh, the amazing, amazing thing that, uh, that David read for us in Job um, that I, I think too often we just kind of gloss over in Job chapter 19 is um, now think of this in light of Easter. Easter is not just about surviving after death. It's about how we survive after death. He says in verse 25 and then 26, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. And here's the kicker. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. And he says, how my heart yearns within me. The hope of Easter is not just that we survive death. It's not just that there's life beyond this life. It's not just we get to go to heaven. It is God has redeemed this flesh. The Christian message of salvation points people to live real physical human lives in this body, living lives that, that reflect Jesus. The Christian gospel is not an escapist gospel where we say this life doesn't count, this humanity doesn't matter, this physical body, this material stuff, it, it, it doesn't count, it doesn't matter. In considering this idea of being... Um, being redeemed by the incarnation of Christ. I want to look at a few passages together with you. And uh, what I've done in these passages is I've highlighted a few words and phrases uh, in the green that um, that'll, that'll point to this idea of, of the incarnation. Uh, in uh, political speak, we would call these perhaps coded incarnational slurs. We find um, in John... 21 verse 24 this is the disciple John's referring to himself this is the disciple who testifies who's, he's just telling you what he's seen of these things and wrote these things and we know that his testimony is true in chapter 19 
verse 35, he says, And he who has seen has testified. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. In his first epistle, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, or that, that we've inquired into, and our hands have even handled, concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. The first characteristic of His life is that He became incarnate. The incarnation. The second is crucifixion. That He was crucified. He died in our behalf so that in His death our sin might be judged and our souls might be justified. He came to set us free. And we too, as we are called to have life in Him, we too are called to, to be people who, who walk in His incarnation and who bear His crucifixion. People who ourselves bear the weight of sin's judgment and bear the joy of our soul's justification. That we have indeed been forgiven. That we indeed stand in the hope of the cross. Paul, in writing to the Colossians, he said, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He said to the, uh, to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life with which I now live in the flesh. Again, think back to that idea of, of incarnation. The life now that I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul recognizes that, our, that his life, our lives, have been conformed to the death of Christ, that we have died with him, that we have been crucified with him. It is a joyous message to be able to say, Our sin has been judged. And our souls have been justified. For we, in having life in Him, we bear also His crucifixion. But lastly, the characteristics of His life include not just incarnation and crucifixion, but also resurrection. The resurrection of Christ, Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke of as God's no to death and His yes to life. In raising His Son from the dead through the power of the Spirit, God 
has shouted no to death. And he has affirmed life. In looking at the greater context of the passage we just looked at in um, Colossians 3, here's, here's that paragraph. Notice this idea of both life and death, of crucifixion and resurrection that Paul brings into his uh, letter to the Colossians. If you were raised with Christ, seek those things that are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Paul says that we have died with Christ and we've also been raised up with Him. And so the Christian life, the life that, that finds life in the name of Jesus, is a life that is incarnate, that is crucified, and that is resurrected. It's not... Any one of these three without the other two? It's not two of them without the third? To live a full Christian life, to live the life that we are called to live in the name of Jesus, is to live a life that's real, that's human, that's physical, that enjoys life, that recognizes this is not bad. This is not inherently sinful. This is something that God has redeemed in His Son Jesus. But it's to live also a life where we ourselves also have been crucified with Christ. Where we bear the world's rejection. Where we bear the world's suffering. Where we bear in our souls the cross of Christ. It was Jesus who said to those disciples and to the multitudes, if anyone wants to be my disciple, there's a cross to take up and bear and then he can follow me. We are called to live lives that bear the suffering, bear the rejection, that share in the afflictions of Christ. But we're called to live lives of hope and resurrection. The resurrection points to a life that is renewed, that's been redeemed and that is also redemptive. Paul calls us the body of Christ. The scriptures point us to a world in need of the hope of the gospel. And the hope of the gospel is not just words on a page. It's not just two or three points in a sermon. It's not just images on a gospel track. The hope of the gospel is lives that are lived redeemed by Christ and that are sharing in the work of redemption. Lives that reflect Jesus and point people to Him. Lives that are lived in the labor of the gospel. Lives in which people find the love of Christ. 
the joy of the gospel, the hope of the gospel. As we consider the word of Scripture and as we consider what God says to our hearts this morning, I want you to prayerfully consider the responses that are on both the back of your communication card and also the back of your bulletin. Perhaps the Spirit is moving on your heart and has drawn your mind to the reality that, you know what, I've never, um, I've never known what it is to believe in Christ for my redemption. I've never known what it is to trust in Him to redeem my soul. Um, I've known the words of the gospel. I've known... The, the, the tenets of Christian faith. I've, I've uh, mentally perhaps been a Christian, but I've never trusted in my own heart that Christ died for me and that He's raised up my life. And perhaps your prayer would be to receive the life that Christ is offering. If so, I want to encourage you to please mark your, um, mark your response. Hang on to your bulletin. Drop off your communication card in the... Um, in the offering plate at the back of the sanctuary after the service is over. Perhaps your response will be, you know what? Christ has given me life. I have trusted in Him and He has given life to my soul. I am His and He is mine. But my response is to nourish that life that He's given to me. Perhaps you've not been in the Scriptures as much as you know you ought to be. Perhaps you've not been... Spending time in prayer as you know you ought to be. Perhaps your um, involvement in Christian relationships and in the life of, of um, the life of God's family has not been what you know it ought to be. Perhaps you know that there's uh, something further that you need to, uh, some further step that you need to make in your prayer would be, Lord, help me to nourish the life that Christ has given to me. If so, I want to encourage you to mark that response. And then lastly, we need to always be mindful of the fact that God redeems people through other people. No, I'm not saying that you and I died on a cross to redeem the world, but I am saying that we are people who bear that gospel in ourselves and that people either see that gospel and hear that gospel and read that gospel in our lives or they don't. And perhaps your commitment this morning would be to share the life that Christ has entrusted to me. To share that life with others. 
to be a vessel through which God can redeem other lives. To be a means of grace in the lives of a neighbor, a friend, a relative, perhaps a co-worker. As we draw to the end of our time together and as we um, prepare our hearts for um, our response and singing, let's bow and say a word of prayer together.